This is Mech's Design Talk, the podcast where we explore emerging technologies, user behavior, and how to design better digital experiences. In this episode, we're looking at the power of tangents and how investing in creative exploration is an essential practice for those who are in the business of selling ideas and insights. Remember, you can find show notes linking to everything that we discuss at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Marek Pawlowski, the founder of MEX. And I'm Alex Guest, the co-host of the MEX podcast. Now, as you know, we are going through a bit of a stage of experimentation as we find our feet with the podcast, and today is no exception. But before we get started, a little bit of context. Now, I suspect that most of you listening to this are in some way in the ideas business. Now, those ideas sometimes are delivered as wireframes or strategy presentations, uh, even finished software or hardware. You might bill them as hours for your clients. You might sell them as products. But really, ultimately, we're all just abstracting the core thing that we're all trading on here. And that is our ability to create quality new ideas, which in some way are rooted in knowledge of user behavior uh, to improve people's overall digital experiences. Uh, Now, those ideas have to come from somewhere, of course. And now sometimes they're iterative things and they result from the kind of normal day-to-day work that you're already doing. Uh, Sometimes they spin off from a client project. Um, But then there's also those transformative tangential ideas, which can sometimes seem to come out of nowhere. And they surprise us with just how potent they can be and that kind of unexpected ability to solve difficult digital experience challenges. Now, this episode is all about those kind of random insights and where they come from, how valuable they can be, uh, and how you can actually invest in a process of nurturing them. Uh, Now, in fact, the recording of this particular edition um, is a bit of an example of that in itself, of how good things can happen in unexpected ways. So I'm recording this from a place called Number 8 Thought Road in Norwich, which is a wonderful events and co-working space, um, who have actually kindly lent me a temporary studio for the day. Uh, and I'm joined by Sarah Daniels. Sarah, how Hello. Are you? Um, Sarah is the co-owner and co-founder of, uh, of Number 8. Um, and the way in which we met, I think, is, is a bit of an example of how these tangential things can happen. Um, so I'm on my way this evening to uh, an event here in Norwich called Hot Source, which is a, a networking group for locals who work in digital, mm-hmm. um, of which you, I believe, I'm a member as well. Indeed. So um, I became introduced to Hot Source a couple of years back uh, through just a random sort of coincidence where I wanted to go and see uh, about a new facilitation method called Lego Serious Play. Um, went along to that, met the lady who was running the session, Patrizia Bertini, who uh, many of you will now know from episodes of this podcast and for the work that she's done uh, as a co-conspirator in the MEX initiative. Uh, and it all came from that random sort of decision. Uh, and in a very circular way, that same random decision has led me here to this uh, event space uh, and to a meeting with Sarah, who it turns out has quite an interesting story about how she herself got involved in this space and the kind Mm -hmm. of random ideas led to that. So what for you was the start of the idea, Sarah, of how Number 8 
came around? When can you trace it back to? We can probably trace it back for about four years, actually. I've been running... I'm an ex-health and safety inspector by background, um, and we run, we've been running a, a health and safety consultancy for, for almost 17 years. And we started to develop training courses and we deliver accredited training courses, but we used to hire venues to do that. And we've pimped ourselves around Norwich uh, a, a bit and no one venue could provide us everything that we wanted, uh, whether it was the size of room, the tech that was in the room, the catering, whether it was the look of the room, the feel of the room. And so we did this uh, entrepreneurial thing and thought, we're going to buy our own. How interesting. So, and how did that become a concrete thing for you? We started our journey. We started looking for premises that would fit us. And that was quite a long, tortuous journey. But we, we, we searched and searched. We went and looked at premises. They were either too small. They were too dingy. They weren't in the right location. They didn't have the room configuration that would um, work for us. Uh, we were part way through buying another premises when that fell through and fortuitously it was the lovely chap called James Dewars uh, who knew us and another friend and said actually one of my colleagues is selling number eight Thorpe Road that has just fallen through how about I put you two together so I went yeah but actually those buildings on number eight Thorpe Road they're quite tiny they've got a small frontage uh, but little did I know that when I came to view number eight, that actually it's a bit like a TARDIS. Um, and I walked in and I can re distinctly remember it. It was a sunny late September afternoon. I met the, the then owner and literally he opened the door to me. I walked in and the light and the feel of the premises was fantastic. And I thought, yeah, this and is us. Presumably having had the experience of using many different venues before, you knew what was important to you at oh, that yes. stage. The other thing I should mention is, is along that journey, I kept uh, an ideas folder, like a mood board, but on my desktop. So every time I saw something that I liked or I thought was a good idea, I dumped it into that folder. And I could constantly look at that and work out where we were going to go with the finished product that has become number eight. Well, and having seen it for the first time today, I can attest to the fact it is a beautiful light-filled space, even on what has turned into a bit of a rainy afternoon here in Norwich. Um, we're in this wonderful, light, airy space to record the podcast. Um, so I know you have other things to be getting off with the, the running of the thing, but just before you go, Sarah, um, what does the future hold for number eight? And where are you looking for your inspiration for what you might do next here? Well, what we've created is a mixture of training rooms, meeting rooms and co-working space, as you said in my introduction. And we're developing a real core of great businesses that use us. And I just want to carry that on. The link with Hot Source is there is an offshoot of Hot Source called Sync Developer. And we, we support Sync Developer HER, which is the ladies part of that. Not that we're just all about girls, but it's about getting girls into tech. And I'm a firm believer that we should aspire to anything that we can. If I can help the next generation in any way, then we will do. Absolutely. Well, it's great to see it happening here in my local area as well. Thank you. And, um, yeah, I hope I get the opportunity to come back and see more of it in the future. So, Marek, it's, it seems to me um, as though Sarah has really illustrated a, a real point um, around a lot of what ultimately drives ideas 
Um, and, and that is that necessity, as, as we know, is, is the mother of invention. Uh, and uh, so many creative ideas that uh, you see coming into existence, whether it is in the digital space or elsewhere, really are born out of necessity. Indeed. I mean, I think you and I have experienced this to a degree ourselves. I mean, if you think back to the work that we were doing around our theme of the intersection of creativity and consumption, I seem to remember that that was one of the overall conclusions that we came to at the end of that you know, quite lengthy piece of work was the role that limitations uh, whether they're artificially imposed, or whether they're things which come as part of uh, the overall environment, um, can really do to spur uh, creativity and how in many ways some kind of limitation is essential. If you're given a completely blank canvas to play with and, and no kind of limitations or context at all, it's actually often very difficult to start the creative process. Yes, absolutely. Um, and uh, if, if I may give an example of, of um, something that is been creatively uh, developed, which has nothing to do with the digital space at all. And, and I might have mentioned it in the past, um, but there's, there's a, a, a superb recording of Keith Jarrett, uh, who's a jazz pianist, um, uh, a live recording of the, the Cologne concert or the Cologne concert. Um, and uh, he faced an extreme limitation uh, when he came to play here. Uh, or, or play there rather, uh, and that was that the piano he was given to play on was frankly subpar, um, and he was forced to play in the middle range of the piano, and he couldn't really use the the, the upper range or the lower ranges of of, of the piano. Um, and uh, the recording that has come out of this is just a superb piece of music, and, and is seen as as one of the best bits of piano jazz. Um, that, have, that have been recorded ever. Um, so, 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 you know, that's really an example there of, of how limiting uh, your potential, if anything, increases your creativity. Now, how did you come across that example yourself? Because I've not heard of that before. Um, so, uh, and, and again, I guess this taps back into what you were saying earlier, this idea of serendipity. Um, but I, I sort of followed a chain of... of um, uh, different thoughts and links until I came across a, a TED talk by Tim Harford. Um, and there he talked about two things. Um, one was Brian Eno's oblique strategies, uh, which I might say a bit more on a bit later. Uh, and the other, he was talking about um, uh, this particular recording by Keith Jarrett. Let's try and put a little bit of structure around how we're going to approach this episode. Um, because uh, as with quite a few of the topics that we look at, and really so many things to do with experience design, they have the potential to become very expansive. But I think there are some specific things that we're aiming at with this. Um, and one is to, um, by looking at some of the examples that have been important to you and I over the years, perhaps give people a bit of inspiration as to where they might look um, for their own kind of creative serendipity and how that can be applied to digital but also, I think it would be interesting to have at the back of our minds as we talk through those, uh, what are the um, overriding principles that we can pull out from that to understand how this can become a process that actually contributes to your overall growth as someone who's working within this field. Um, and I think we've got off to a good start with a couple of these different random examples here. Um, but there's also uh, another chap 
um, who I'm sure many will be familiar with, who in many ways was the arch exponent of this and perhaps the person who's had the greatest success with it. And cliche as it is, it is Steve Jobs of Apple. Uh, now, back at MEX 14, I think it was, uh, we pulled out a series of um, quotes from famous people which we thought were inspiring relations digital design. The Steve Jobs one really struck out um, or stuck out for, for me. Uh, and it came from his uh, commencement speech that he gave a, at a university in the US where he said, if I hadn't have dropped out, I never would have dropped in. And with that, he was referring to his decision to pull out from his original college course uh, and instead spend his time sneaking into these random courses on campus about stuff which was entirely unrelated or seemingly unrelated to what he was doing at the time. And he pointed to one in particular, which was his uh, typography course that he went on. Uh, and looking back uh, at that point when he's giving the commencement speech in the early 2000s, he was able to trace the root of the Max typography pedigree back to that decision that he made to drop out of his mainstream course and go into these random courses on typography um, as the root of where the Max prowess with typography came from and what made it such a success with designers. And you know the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, and he made this great point, which is that it's really difficult to connect the dots going forward and see how those kind of random things are going to play out in the future and how they might be important to your future career. Um, you can only really do it looking back, but if you don't invest in doing those things in the first place, you're not going to have anything to look back on. Was this one you were familiar with, Alex? Did you come across this before? Yes, I, I have come across it, and I, I've, I've listened to the commencement speech, I, I think, on one or two occasions. Um, and I was wondering whether you were going to mention typography, because that is something that he is uh, well known for. Um, and and I, I absolutely agree that if you um, sow seeds or, you know, that, that may result in, in certain things growing w without knowing exactly what is going to come of it, I think that can be quite exciting. And, and um, I, I suppose often it comes to nothing. You know, you, you, you sow a bunch of seeds and, and nothing grows. But um, I find at times that you, you, you come back to something and you, and you realize that something has, has, has stemmed from uh, something you did a long time ago that was just a, a by chance thing, just taking an opportunity, however small, to just to do something uh, and not let that opportunity go by. So how do you justify that to yourself? Because these things obviously take time. Sometimes they take a bit of money and an investment as well, but they certainly always take a big investment uh, in time to go off and do these things. When you have jumped on those opportunities in the past, how do you justify it in your own mind? Well, often, actually, things don't require spending any money at all. Uh, I, I guess, uh, let, let, me, let me give a concrete example. So, um, right now, I, I am very fortunate to be working out of a, uh, an accelerator space. Um, I'm not actually part of the accelerator program, um, but I'm working out of the space because I've been, off, I've, I've been given a desk. And that came from uh, me offering some time to help a startup initially a couple of years ago. By by helping that startup, I I was then brought into the sort of the mentoring sphere of uh, of this accelerator, um, and um, you know just just and 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 the idea of helping the startup was was just for the interest in that startup, not for any particular reason. Uh, I was interested in what they were doing, and I felt that I could be useful. Um, hopefully, I was useful. I was certainly very interested by their work. 
um, and and that led to to some more mentoring and and so on uh, until uh, you know what came of that was this very useful thing of of, of being able to to work out of the accelerator, being able to brush shoulders with with uh, peers uh, and and trade ideas as well as just have somewhere to to work that um, that in itself might lead to who knows what. So I suppose it sounds like unless you're actually willing to make that first jump in some form yourself, um, you never would have discovered uh, that there were these additional possibilities down the line and you didn't necessarily do it with the desk in mind as a goal. Um, but unless you'd have been willing to make that sort of speculative contribution off your own bat without necessarily an expectation of any return by stepping in to do some mentoring, uh, none of these additional serendipitous things would have occurred. That, yeah, that's right. And I, and I think I think the idea is to, 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 to walk about with an open mindset, to keep your eyes open for opportunity. Um, and and when opportunity strikes, to, to, to go with it and, and see what happens. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and I mean, today's example, we just heard from uh, Sarah Daniels of um, the venue, which has provided a studio today, um, is a, a similar and, and lovely example of that for me. Um, and also had the side benefit of being the way in which um, we first met Patrizia Bertini, who you've heard from on this podcast before, and people who participated at the last MEX would have enjoyed her Lego Serious Play facilitation uh, session that she conducted there. And that all came from this initial connection, you know, this same route, which has led to these different branches of meeting Patrizia and her becoming involved in the uh, the MEX initiative, finding this studio space today, and then going on to uh, this event this evening, which um, should in itself be an interesting activity. Again, a hot source event based uh, here in Norwich, which is doing all sorts of things to try and encourage creativity and digital within the city. And this particular one is going to focus on uh, drawing skills, uh, now, I have no formal training as an artist, um, and by my own admission, my um, drawing skills are pretty limited, uh, but this is something which I'm interested to do really for that very reason, because it's something which is outside of my normal comfort zone uh, and a chance to experiment with some things where I can approach it with a completely fresh and naive mindset. and. Perhaps you know that's when uh, these learnings are, are most powerful because the mind is quite open to accepting new ideas from different directions, which you can then process at a later stage and apply to things which are a part of your day-to-day work. Well, Marek, I have to say that my favourite painting at the National Gallery is uh, uh, the tiger. At, uh, it's Rousseau's tiger. Uh, and, and Rousseau had no formal training and um, was rejected by all the famous artists of the period until finally somehow he 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 broke through so so perhaps there's a future career for you there <laughs> indeed and the possibility to travel out to the jungle maybe for for inspiration yes well apparently he never actually did go to the jungle <laughs> well that maybe that's why his stuff has such a unique look to it then yes <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about some more um, examples here. I'm guessing you've probably got a, a few up your sleeve. Um, should we start with uh, our most outrageously tangential or those which uh, have got a, a closer and more obvious link to digital? Well, I, I think we should go for something that is completely unexpected. Okay, do you want to go first or would you like me to, to volunteer one? Go on, jump in, Mark. Okay, I'm going to take you to uh, the 18th century. 
and the production of gold snuff boxes. Mm. Okay, have you ever seen a, a gold snuff box from the 18th century? I very much doubt it. <laughs> well, neither had I um, until I came across an exhibition of them at the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge. Now, as I recall, I think this was a couple of years back and I was in Cambridge for some meetings with technology companies and happened to have half an hour spare. So it popped into the Fitzwilliam Museum, which comes highly recommended for anyone who's ever in Cambridge in the UK. It's got a, an amazing collection, which you can explore for free of all kinds of different things. And they happen to have these gold snuff boxes there. And I was amazed by the intricacy of the, the workmanship on them. Uh, and alongside the exhibition, there's a little sign saying, we're having a conference on gold snuff boxes. Now it piqued my interest, I guess, for a couple of reasons. There are, you know, a couple of links into the reality of what I do day to day, which enabled me to justify actually going and getting involved with this. The first is obviously I'm in the business of organizing events and conferences with uh, what we do with MEX. Um, and it just fascinated me that there was such a thing as a conference dedicated to, to me, so esoteric a subject as 18th century gold snuff boxes. Uh, and then also there was that more tangential link in my mind with what was happening at the time around wearables. Uh, and this was around the point at which there were lots of rumors about the release of the Apple Watch. I think it may have either coincided uh, with the official release or maybe it was shortly before when there were lots of, of rumors floating around. And I thought to myself, well, this perhaps is something which might provide a little bit of inspiration from the left field uh, about how to think about these these different areas. So I went along to said conference, and uh, as you made the point earlier, these things don't always have to cost a huge amount of money. I think it was something like £10 to go to this conference on the, the gold snuff boxes. Uh, and um, it was, to give you an idea of the way in which it was organized, uh, I think the only way to pay that £10 was to bring along a handwritten check on the day to hand over to the venue to pay your fee, which you know, perhaps gives you an idea of the, the sort of participants that they're expecting. Uh, but the 18th I found, century, perhaps. <laughs> you know, I think there were one or two people there who perhaps were motivated by the idea that they would like to have lived in the 18th century. And it, it really was a fascinating uh, crowd of people. Um, but uh, looking back at my notes from, from that day, there were a couple of things which I learned. And I was actually how surprised by how closely they linked to some of the challenges that I was thinking about um, in my day-to-day -day at that time relating to the wearables market. Uh, and the first was that the pricing model um, of these gold snuff boxes was almost identical to that of the Apple Watch. Uh, the snuff box obviously had a, a singular functional purpose. It was about holding this very fine powder, uh, which was used as snuff as part of a sort of social ritual or an addiction for people in the 18th century. And all of the boxes did the same thing in the same way that all of the Apple Watch models did exactly the same functional thing. Um, but of course, the pricing of them varied considerably, and it was all based around the materials, just like Apple has done with uh, the watch product, where the price goes anything from a few hundred dollars up to many, many thousands of dollars, depending on the materials that you choose. And at the time um, when that came out, a lot of people within the technology industry are pointing to it and say, oh, this is a revolutionary pricing model for Apple. No one else in the wearable space has done this. And yet you can look back several hundred years and find that actually it was already going on within the snuffbox market in the 18th century. So do you think that Apple has been directly influenced by the snuffbox market? 
I do love the notion of people sitting around in Cupertino experimenting with snuff boxes to, to get inspiration for, for their Apple Watch pricing. But I, I suspect it was probably um, a, a more tangential thing that they came to it through research that they would have done uh, within the jewellery business and perhaps looking at luxury goods. And actually, if you look at you know, a lot of the people who uh, joined Apple in that area uh, and in other areas of the Apple business, they clearly have been going out to people who have experience within that luxury market um, to bring in some new ideas and some new thinking about how these kind of products should be, uh, should be priced and should be launched. Indeed. And I think actually in, in the retail part of, of the Apple uh, dare I say, Empire? Um, they 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 drew from from uh, companies like Burberry's to uh, to to help uh, run the the organisation um, as, as a retail unit and really getting that experience um, from the luxury market into into their own organisation. Yeah, as I understand, it was the lady who was leading Burberry Retail who now does the same job for Apple, and they're just now starting to roll out a lot of the changes that she'd been working on since she joined Apple in the background. They're now starting to roll out at Apple's great network of, of retail outlets around the world, which I think would be really interesting to see how people, how customers respond to those changes. Uh, and, and quite interesting to consider as well the degree to which yeah, that's been informed by uh, experimental decisions on Apple's part, or maybe how they're responding to the way they're seeing their customers uh, interacting with their products already. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not sure you know, how much time you spend uh, in retail generally and, and shopping, but when you go to an Apple store, I mean, I always seem to notice that people treat it as much as uh, an expedition of window shopping, an expedition to some kind of luxury experience, perhaps slightly more accessible luxury than other brands, but they are using it very much as a luxury retail experience rather than um, something that you might associate traditionally with digital or consumer electronics. It, it does feel a little bit like a small gallery when you go into an Apple store. Um, I mean, clearly it is it is retail, but there there is a sort of slight gallery feel to it where you can walk around and look at the displays um, and, and interact with them. Yes, but uh, but they are still displays, um, and and of course people are on hand to to help you, and it's and it's all sort of nicely done. Um, and, and so 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 for me, the mix is is somewhere between museum and and uh, upmarket retail, and yet very clean and simple um, layouts as well. Yeah, and perhaps that leads to um, a certain set of behaviours among people when they're in that kind of space. I mean, we know from the things that we do with uh, the MEX events, for instance, that obviously the space that you're in informs the way you behave and the way you think, uh, and that those things can have quite a, a powerful link um, with the ability to think tangentially and uncover ideas that you might not otherwise have, have experienced. Uh, it, it reminds me um, a bit of one of the trips that you and I did together when we were looking at that intersection theme previously, where we went to a place called the Welcome Collection. Do you recall our day out at the, the Welcome Collection? A absolutely. And, and that actually was quite inspirational for me that, that particular day in, in more ways than one. So, had you come prior to going there? Had you come across the Welcome Collection before? I'd certainly walked past it about a thousand times. So maybe we should give people a bit of background on what we're talking about. Um, so Henry Welcome you know, founded the Welcome 
drug company, I guess, well over 100 years ago now, uh, and obviously made a considerable fortune uh, in doing so, and um, spent a lot of his money on becoming arguably one of the world's most prolific collectors. They reckon he collected something like a million different objects over his lifetime. Uh, and he left his collection in the building which houses them uh, in London on the Euston Road um, to be used as uh, a space that people can come into and use these kind of objects as inspiration, particularly about the intersection between art uh, and science. Um, so do you want to remind people of what we were doing there on, on our day when we went um, to, to seek some inspiration? Yeah, I mean, essentially, we were working at the, the time on, on this project, uh, looking at the the what we refer to as the intersection between consumption and creativity. Um, and, and they were really talking about that moment in time when a digital consumer goes from viewing or in some way engaging with a piece of content and, and taking that content and being inspired to, to create something new in some way, um, whether it's a reduction of that, whether it's, it's um, something as simple as sharing a piece of content, but, but also perhaps um, seeing an image and deciding to turn that into, say, a sculpture or, 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 or something else. Um, so so there, there are a vast number of different possibilities that we, what we looked at. And at the time there, I think we were looking at, um, uh, we, we went to have a look at a particular display, as I recall, Yes, I mean, there were a variety of different um, things that we looked at on the day. But one of the things which struck me was that I think we'd gone along to look at some quite specific exhibits. But I, I seem to remember um, right from the outset, we got a bit sidetracked in a good way uh, by the building itself. Um, there was a, I don't know if you recall, but there was a freeze um, on the wall where there were the names of 30 different physicians and scientists who had made great contributions to the field that had been inscribed uh, on the wall of the building itself. Um, and that, I think, that's, in, that's in the reading room, I, I think, right? Exactly, yeah. They have the, this lovely space there, which is um, full of books, but also different objects, and is not um, intended as a quiet library space where you have to go and study in silence, but really is somewhere where the things that you see can inspire you to have conversations. Uh, and I think you know, we found ourselves talking about the room itself and, and what it would mean um, for a scientist to find their name inscribed in stone on the wall of a building like that, which has got this real history attached to it and this real sense of longevity. Uh, and it got us talking about the notion of uh, how does the, the medium in which um, whatever it is you're consuming actually inform the way in which you think about it, and that perhaps having something engraved into stone is the ultimate example of really committing something for the long term, right through to much more ephemeral forms of consumption, uh, where you might be um, I don't know, looking at examples like, say, uh, a tweet or maybe even a, a Snapchat message, which are actually designed to disappear after a certain amount of time. Uh, and that informs the way in which they're used just the same as it in would inform the way in which something like this was used uh, if you're going to actually commit to engraving the thing into stone with chisels. Yes, I, I, there, there's a there's a huge discrepancy between those those two things, and 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 um, and I think one of the other things we were thinking about while looking at the, the, the those names is what does it mean to be there, and what does it mean not to be there? Also, amongst amongst the 
the illuminated uh, scientists. Um, but but there were some other, as you say, some 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 quite um, uh, transient bits of of um, media that that had been produced by, uh, for example, a group of school children who who were um, writing down. I, I think they were given prescriptions for a better life, um, and and um, uh, th they were deciding what it was that that would make life better. And and there was, the, uh, I think there was one that was talking about. Um, uh, eating more cake and, and and various other things of this kind. Yes, I remember that. In fact, I remember we both ended up taking photographs of different uh, versions of those prescriptions, which had all been posted up on the wall. Uh, and it, it led me to think about how those kind of motivations that you have tucked away at the back of your mind are really crucial to remaining open to random ideas when they happen to pop up in the general course of life. Uh, now, at the time, I think you had a bit of a motivation about a writing project that you had going on separately, which perhaps guided you towards wanting to record um, a different one from the one which I focused in on, which I think was the one about cake addiction, because as perhaps the regular listeners to the podcast will know, cake addiction is something which features heavily in my life. <laughs> um Yes, I, 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 I guess it must do. <laughs> um, but the, the, the I, I was uh, enjoying a, a, a writing project at the time, um, uh, putting together a, a story for, uh, I suppose, fairly young children, and, and it was a sort of slightly magical story. Um, the, the, the cake addiction one actually did, I, I sort of combined a number of different ones of these prescriptions, including the cake addiction one, but also there was one about China dolls and, and, and various other things. Uh, and ultimately that became a, a storyline um, within the overall um, narrative in which uh, two uh, young intrepid explorers, girls, um, come across these life-size China dolls um, that uh, that come to life and serve them cake, um, and and you know that's a that's a sort of snippet from it. But that's that's part of how um, that little moment in in the reading room uh, ended up uh, inspiring me to to do something, uh, I suppose, vaguely creative. So this is all very well, and clearly you and I, I think, are of similar mind that. We love the notion of random ideas and we take inspiration from them in the different things that we're involved in. Um, but of course, there is a real practical problem with applying uh, this sort of methodology and this sort of notion about the value of ideas uh, in most business settings, which is that there needs to be a justification. I mean, this is something that I know all too well um, from uh, something like the MEX initiative, where even organizations which pay lip service to the value of, say, user-centered design methodologies, uh, unless they can really connect the dots in quite an obvious way as to how sending someone to an event or being involved in an event of that nature is going to translate into some kind of easily measurable read financial benefit for them, um, that makes the justification to participate that much more difficult. Um, so there almost needs to be sort of two levels to this discussion about, firstly, how do you celebrate all of these diverse different methods that you can use to keep yourself open to this sort of stuff, but also how at a much more practical level um, do we show organizations or individuals uh, who maybe aren't convinced um, that actually there is genuine benefit to be uh, obtained from there. 
Uh, I mean, have you found that uh, any of these different activities that you and I have been involved in or um, ones that you've done uh, yourself um, have gone on to relate directly into the sort of things that would be measurable with traditional business metrics? I, I think if I, if I go back a few years to, to when I uh, decided to invest in doing an MBA, uh, not the sort of thing that user experience people tend to do and, and not something that I would necessarily recommend to, to people who want to uh, carry out a, a user experience um, career. But uh, I was thinking quite recently back to one particular um, afternoon uh, in that course where uh, the former CEO of Tetra Pak, the, the business that packages up uh, fruit juices and milk and, and whatever else in, in, in cardboard boxes and has done for a long time, that the, uh, a former CEO of that company came in and gave a talk and, and I took away a few lessons from that talk, and, and um, one of them was that in paradoxes lie opportunities. Um, and, and really what he was saying is that in the context of trying to um, reduce costs, sometimes you can also find the opportunity to do something much more creative. Um, so it's not necessarily the case that you need to slash costs and slash I, I guess the quality of what you're producing, you may end up producing something quite new and different as a result of that. So it's it's really looking for for opportunities to do something more creative when when you have to 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 find yourself uh, reduced and, and and in a more limited situation. Um, and and you know there 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 are sort of fairly simple things like you know if you're trying to save energy while also trying to increase the temperature of your home, for example, you know how do you go about that? Well, you know if you spend a small amount of money in insulation then you will increase the temperature of your room and you will over time save money and also save um, save on, on, on energy expenditure. So it's, it's things of this kind that, that can have a very direct, um, uh, direct outcome, but it's not immediately going to be obvious that that's going to be the case. And I think it, it needs quite strong and, and open-minded leadership um, and, and an organization that is set up in such a way that um, leadership can spring up in different places for that to allow to happen. Yeah, it's interesting when you think to the long term of our own area of the digital experience industry, um, and it almost feels like we're reaching this inflection point at the moment where there's been uh, an extended period in which companies have been able to uh, make a good business out of the craft, if you like, of delivering digital experiences of varying levels of quality, but always trading on the fact that essentially they were novel and they knew how to do things which were quite new to traditional businesses. Um, but when you project that forward, it comes back to that notion that you're hinting at there, I think, about how uh, a leader of an organization like that is able to look at that kind of unfolding scenario and say, you know what? this area that we're in is changing. And unless we prepare ourselves for a future in which we're going to need to be able to think more creatively or more expansively, even if that means doing some things which perhaps seem a little counterintuitive at the moment or that we can't connect directly to the metrics which are important to our business today, unless we do those things, 
things will change very quickly around us and we might rapidly find ourselves in a position where our business isn't operating in a way which is no longer relevant to the market conditions that it finds itself in. Uh, and I wonder, and I guess as a question to you, whether you feel like that's something which is accelerating. My feeling, Marek, is that there are now so many different technologies that are being worked on by some superb minds. And those technologies are, are, are beginning to come to fruition. And, and uh, established companies need to be thinking, and are thinking in many cases, of how can they, first of all, avoid being irrelevant um, through replacement by new technologies, but also how can they exploit those new technologies uh, in order to become um, more interesting and, 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 and generate more value for, for their customers, for their shareholders, and, and for their employees. Um, and to a certain extent, I'm, I'm thinking here a little bit about Microsoft and, and the sorts of things that Microsoft has been doing over time to try to, to maintain some sort of leadership position. I know Microsoft comes across and gets quite a lot of stick, and yet it is doing some very exciting things. So on the one hand, while it is... Um, acquiring businesses like Skype, like more recently LinkedIn, um, as, as the announcement was earlier this week, which aren't in, I- immediately obvious as to what benefit they will have to the company, although you know, there are some, some strategic reasons for, doing, for, for, for making those acquisitions. Uh, some of the technology that it's, being, that, that it's investing, um, things like the, the HoloLens project and, 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 and those sorts of things, do suggest a future for Microsoft that might be quite exciting. Yes, I'd agree with that. And also maybe bring in another example as well, which you and I ended up having direct experience of recently with HTC. Uh, we went and spent uh, some time, which um, I think is going to make it into a future podcast episode as well, looking at uh, the HTC Vive with Greg Taylor of Tiger Spike, uh, who um, participated in an earlier MEX podcast, uh, to try and understand uh, what that experience is all about, which they're doing uh, along um, the lines of virtual reality, but also um, where HTC themselves have come from there. I mean, just like you're mentioning with Microsoft, HTC um, has or had an established business in the smartphone space, which is suffering, uh, but they've realized that there's a new opportunity here uh, around virtual reality and are looking to do some things, uh, in their case, through, I think, more organic growth uh, and internal development rather than the acquisitions that Microsoft are doing to prepare themselves for a very different uh, environment. What was also interesting about that particular trip for me was that... um, Greg is, is heading up this unit that's all about looking at future opportunity. And, and so by, by and, I, and I think this is going to be the third time I say it today, but uh, by, by having this open-minded approach to future possibilities, without necessarily trying to put a, 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 you know, a concrete figure in an Excel spreadsheet saying that, you know, this, this investment is going to result in, in this return, um, but simply saying that strategically we need to be thinking about the future because the future is obviously coming um, then then um, that, that there is opportunity there to, to, to keep ahead of the competition and to do interesting work both of which of course are important so sometimes this ends up manifesting like you were giving examples there of Microsoft in things like 
acquisitions, which when you're Microsoft and you have rather a large number of dollars sitting on your balance sheet, you have the opportunity to do. Um, sometimes it also ends up translating into things like uh, the way in which um, you determine HR policy and the way your employees work. I mean, Google famously introduced the concept of its 20% time, where people could spend 20% of their time doing these experimental side projects, uh, which some of which then went on to become quite successful for Google. Um, but it also um, sometimes manifests in things like uh, established companies creating these uh, accelerator or incubator units where they want to try and um, encourage people to have license to think more creatively and do some experimental things away from the, the core business. Uh, now, I'm guessing that with the work that you've done with your startups over the years, you've probably come across a number of those. Do you feel like um, there are particular aspects of those different strategies which are sustainably successful in the future if, if you are going to look at this through, through the lens of sort of corporate investment? Corporate venturing is is quite an interesting field. Quite often, I, I suppose regrettably, it's, it, they, they're not always very successful um, simply because trying to replicate uh, a sort of a startup environment, um, even as a separate unit within a major organization, doesn't always work. Um, and I think the reason for that is, is twofold. Um, one is that startups are, 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 are started up by um, individuals who have visions of success that, that are sometimes quite difficult for other people to see. And if you were to apply any sort of proper um, value-based calculation to investing in a startup at the, at the, at the outset, I, I think nothing would ever get started. And I, I think within corporate venturing units, typically there is some expectation that even um, these sort of nascent businesses uh, should ultimately provide some sort of return. And I think this rather cripples the the opportunity because um, while they give a lot of money to to these sort of separate enterprises to to get going, they still have to justify uh, much more frequently than a startup does uh, why they're even in existence, and they have to go through the sorts of uh, hoops uh, that that uh, a startup just doesn't do in the same way. So a startup moves much faster, basically. Uh, and, this, and the second thing is that you know the founders of startups want to do things um, very much independently. Now that's not to say that you know as a founder you'd be on your own, but you don't necessarily want to have a corporate structure sitting on top of you, uh, even if you do at some point have investors who who um, uh, you might at times feel are getting in the way, but hopefully are, are helping you on your journey. Um, but it, it's 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 so different to being part of a major organisation, um, and, and I guess that trying to get that right for major enterprises, multinationals that have these corporate venturing units is is really a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, that, that's a good point, and I mean, in some ways, the the clue there is in the vocabulary used to describe these things. I mean, when you hear startup, inherently there's a a freshness to that, a sense that you are beginning with this clean slate, which frees you from previous considerations and constraints that may have come from the way existing businesses tackle a particular problem. And then in giving yourself 
that kind of freedom from the outset, you're able to think more creatively. That's right. And I, and I think so. One, one of the things that I think is coming, uh, coming out now is this idea of uh, major companies, rather than having corporate venturing units, um, uh, having accelerator programs where they will take a, a small stake in, uh, in a startup. So for a startup, they're still doing the startup thing. Um, they're being brought together in a uh, collaborative space with other startups. Um, they have a little bit of funding um, that helps them along their way. They have some mentoring and they have connections to, to people who may be able to help them. And in some cases, you may direct, directly have potential uh, customers uh, within the uh, within the sponsoring organization's um, established business units. And I, and I think that is a much more interesting way of doing things and potentially more successful. Yes, a lot of startups will fail, um, but it, it also allows startups to flourish in a way that is more natural. So there's a bit of a paradox developing here, as I see it, which is that we started with this notion, I think, that some kind of constraints are good, that generally speaking, creativity flourishes when there is a necessity for it. And that constraint can give impetus to, to that kind of um, development of ideas. But at the same time, we're also acknowledging here, I think, that there is a real value to being able to look at things with an entirely fresh set of eyes or an entirely fresh area uh, and that things can come out of that. I mean, how, how do we reconcile those two things? Because I think they both have elements of, of validity uh, in some degree. I mean, is it a particular type of constraint that we're talking about here which can be positive to this? Is it a particular approach to that sort of freshness which is valuable, which allows those two things to coexist? Because at a gut level, it feels like them coexisting actually does um, assist creativity. And yet, if you look at that you know, at face value, it seems quite difficult to reconcile those two notions. I, I, th I think um, there are quite clear differences between those two elements. I think when we're talking about limitations assisting in creativity, what I think we're effectively saying is that you, you, you have a set of constraints, whether they are the absolute starting point, as, as we had with, with Sarah at the start of today's show, or whether it's something like saying, um, we're going to have, and, and this is actually something that, that, that I've done with my current project, which is we've decided we would have one typeface and we would only have it in normal, uh, in, in, you know, the typeface would, would never be in italics and it would never be in bold. So by, by putting those constraints around it, what you're actually saying is, well, how do you emphasize um, certain bits of script and, and that allows some creativity to come around and say okay well if we want emphasis we can either uh, change the color or the size of the of, of the font we can make the background slightly different um, and or we can either you know we can put boxes around things or we can free it from from things like boxes and of course that's a very specific point but I think what we're saying is that we're generating limitations or allowing limitations to be very much creative forces and saying, okay, given these constraints, let's be creative. As opposed to saying, let's justify every action that we take by having some sort of required return from that action. And, and so that limitation, I think, is, is basically 
creatively, uh, um, uh, well, I guess the death knell of creativity, to be honest. Perhaps we could say that um, the type of constraints which you pick and why you pick them uh, is just as important uh, as where you're getting the source of these ideas from or the budget that you're dedicating them, uh, the, the process of, of refining those constraints and acknowledging which are the most important to you can be a real guiding force in being able to make tangential creative leaps. Yes, I think that's exactly it. Now, on the the freshness aspect of this, I mean, I can only really speak from personal experience here, but what I've found in these different random creative experiments that I do in these different random events that I find myself at, like the 18th century gold snuff boxes conference, which is probably at the extreme scale of the, <laughs> the tangential links that I've gone to, uh, to seek, um, is that I find that if I can discipline myself to, while I'm engaged in that activity, trying to look at it in as naive and fresh a way as possible, uh, what I find is that I'm then in a much better position and have a much richer set of notes and resources to process at a later stage when I then seek out the links that it might have into the day-to-day work that I'm doing at the time, be it an event about digital experience or client work or, or whatever it is. Um, but that in itself, you know, requires, I guess, a bit of a constraint of, of discipline in the mind to say, you know, while I'm at this conference or while I'm participating in this sketching activity or while I'm doing this random course that seems unrelated to my day-to-day work, uh, I'll try to do it with a completely open mind and I'll worry about the links at a later stage. Do you think that that's realistic? I mean, when you go into these things, are you able to, to make that separation in your mind between this is the now and I'll worry about the, the links to, uh, to to other things at a later stage? Um, yeah, yes, I suppose that is. Well, I, I, I think to an extent that is true. But I, I don't know about you, Mary, but I often find that while I'm sitting there absorbing something that is um, stimulating, whether it is listening to a talk or or, or viewing something or, or whatever it happens to be, I often just automatically start finding that this could in some way impact on, on something that I'm currently working on. But, but for you, I'm, I'm also curious to know, when you, when you look at the, 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 the fruit of this sort of inspiration, do you find that it is, you know, you have to recall it consciously and, and um, bring it into whatever it is you're working on consciously, or is it something that somehow impacts the work you're doing in a subconscious way? I think it's a mixture of the two. Um, In some ways, maybe I'd separate it out into a couple of strands. So you have um, maybe some of the underlying methods which you observe from a seemingly unrelated area, which I think perhaps at a more subconscious level end up going on to influence things that you do in your day-to-day work. Um, so, you know, you might take an example of, for instance, the um, longevity of training to become expert in, say, a particular craft. I mean, another thing I went to recently as an event was all about the process of enameling on luxury watches. Uh, Now, the training involved to achieve the level of skill required um, for some of these really high-end watches is extraordinary. I mean, you're talking about a lifetime's dedication to the art form there. Uh, And in that sense, you know, I think there's something there about um, the patience required to become a true 
true expert in a craft to really have that kind of intimate knowledge of your materials, be they, uh, you know, the, the silicon powder and um, heat and metals that are used in enameling, uh, or be they the ones and zeros that are used in digital, where I think there was that kind of subconscious influence that I, it didn't occur to me until a much later stage. Um, but then also there are those more direct things where you might take some of the, the sort of raw content um, out of a session like that. Like in that particular example, uh, they were showing some of the um, example pieces of metal they use where they're experimenting with different uh, colors and different textures of enamel that might go on to be used. So it's basically their form of prototyping. Uh, and it made me think immediately about how when you've got a really high value final item, which you're working on, the value of the prototyping process becomes much more important because obviously you can't commit things to the final build, if you like, whether that's a luxury watch or whether that's a piece of software or hardware or a strategy deliverable for a company that you're working for. Um, when the stakes are very high, you really need to think extensively about the ways in which you go about prototyping. And in this case, it meant that they had to spend quite a bit of time thinking about what are some substitute materials that we can use to practice the enameling technique without actually using gold itself, which is obviously very expensive. But in the digital area, you might think about, well, what are some of the lo-fi ways that we can start to prototype interfaces and, and that sort of thing before we go ahead and do an expensive final build, which obviously requires lots of, of time and resources. So I think it can operate at, uh, at both of those levels. Um, and maybe it varies depending on the kind of activity that you're doing, because obviously not all of these activities are the same. Sometimes it's events that you've been to. Sometimes it's books that you've read. Sometimes it's just random things that you've noticed. You know, we have this ongoing series of user stories, for instance, that you and I, um, uh, you know, are looking at for the podcast and, and recording in our, our day to day, um, where we look at little random bits of user behavior. And all of those, I think, have a use of some kind, but perhaps it's a slightly different use depending on, on each of the the scenarios yeah i'm sure that that's that's absolutely right the idea of um on the one hand becoming expert and on the other um just having a, a sort of subconscious um fountain of 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 um possibilities that are tucked away well perhaps there's a question here of balance as well in how you choose these different activities because clearly we're not advocating here that people who are working in digital industry scrap uh, all of the different you know CPD and uh, ongoing training and things that they do specific to this field. I mean, that's obviously not the answer here at all. Um, but perhaps there's a sense of establishing a bit of balance between those activities which relate very strongly uh, to what you're doing in the day-to-day, -day, but at the same time introducing a series of things which allow you to experience the power of uh, getting into contact with new industries, with new techniques, with new people that you might not meet during the course of your day-to-day, -day, uh, and just looking for little tangible examples of how you can then apply that, either subconsciously or consciously, to work that you're doing, and using that as a way of building evidence to yourself to justify that time. Uh, but also, I guess, if you're working for a, a large organization, um, as a way of justifying it to uh, the people who hold the budget for those kind of activities or who control the, the time that people can spend on this sort of stuff. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, and, and but so, I mean, as you say, sometimes it's, 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 the, it's just some, some small things. And, and of course, you're not going to throw away the, the, the training and education in, in, in developing your skill in your specific area. 
but but being open to inspiration and and you know finding small things that can create opportunities i i think that is 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 that is is that what we're we're saying is is fundamental to 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 creativity yes i think it is uh, to an extent i mean th- there's another element to it as well which i'll i'll perhaps introduce into the mix uh, and this is something which i think you and i have experienced directly and it's only really in thinking about this podcast episode that i've started to see the importance of it um and that is that all of these things regardless of the spirit in which you enter into them uh, they seem to thrive on there needing to be some sort of output from them you know you can go to any number of different random events you can read any number of of random books um but there is a, a an exponential value which comes when you start to try and create something off the back of all of that different inspiration that you've had uh, and i think we've seen it you know in things like that intersection project that we did um in things like for instance the genesis of this podcast itself yeah the fact that we have to discipline ourselves to actually sit down um every week or two and do something with the little random bits of research that we've been doing of the little random ideas that we've been exchanging you know, in between each of the episodes i think the discipline of doing that um adds a value to the overall process in the sense of committing it to memory and in the sense of also creating a bit of a sort of lasting record which goes on to have a value of its own yeah and and actually if if i may say from my own personal perspective this podcast um series has has certainly encouraged me to to learn more about all sorts of different areas that we've covered in the last uh, last few months and and um by doing that that's actually helped to inform me of of various possibilities um that um could come into play with with the sort of work that I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. Well that's good. You know we I uh, hopefully end up being living examples of this very notion which is is great. Definitely. Well, um I guess we've come to the end of uh of our recording time. Um as ever it's been a a wandering journey but hopefully one which has um come up with some different insights we will of course link to all of the different references that we've mentioned in this in particular things like that uh, intersection project which led to uh, a few different essays and examples that Alex and I published uh, about a year ago now uh, and all of the different resources including um where the podcast is being hosted today which was our starting point way back when we began this recording uh, an hour or so ago uh, and um encourage you to get in touch with your thoughts on the episode and your feedback on where we're going with the podcast you can email designtalk@mobileuserexperience.com or you can tweet us uh, at @mexfeed always good to hear from people um but i wanted to just throw in and perhaps finish off uh, from my side with with um an idea that has come from this uh collection of of oblique strategies that i mentioned at the start of the podcast uh, and that is uh one particular card amongst the oblique strategies says discover the recipes you are using and abandon them and to me that sounds like quite an interesting way of finding new opportunities absolutely yeah that's a, a great note to end things on i think now these are brian eno's uh, oblique strategy cards yes that's right okay well, we'll set up a link to that in the uh, the show notes and um, perhaps pick out that one as a 
uh, yeah, a message for people to go off and see if they can apply in between now and our next episode. And hopefully some listeners will get in touch to let us know how that's worked out for them. Mark, it's been great. As always, very nice to catch up, Alex. And uh, we'll be back in the next episode. That's it for this edition of Mech's Design Talk. A reminder of the ways you can get in touch. Email us at designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com or we're at mechsfeed on Twitter. Don't forget those show notes at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section where we link to all of the different references and examples that we mentioned during the show. And that you can also find a now quite extensive archive of previous episodes of the podcast. If you're just joining us and this is the first one you've heard, there's a wealth of material that you can go back through. Also, please do spread the word about the podcast if you're enjoying it. Share it on social media, tweet about it, uh, and also take the time, please, to give us a rating at iTunes. It's one of the best ways to bump the podcast up the charts and to help bring it to the attention of new listeners. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.